Yeah, as Bruce said, uh, he's continuing on in his series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you'd please uh, grab your Bibles and stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. That's Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Uh, if you've got your pew Bible, it is on page 553. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any other reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, the fact that, that you did not just spin this world into motion and then leave us uh, to our own devices, but God, that you revealed yourself in history and, and you've done that and, and preserved that through your word and that we can uh, hear from you and learn from you. God, I just pray that, that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are soft and hands that are willing to apply. We just want to uh, become more and more like you. And that the world would know you. In your name we pray. Amen. There is uh, always a burden of responsibility that I feel when I stand before you each and every Sunday morning to preach God's word. But today, I must admit that I especially feel the weight of that responsibility for two reasons. One is simply because of the topic that we're going to address this morning. And of course, we are going to see what Jesus says about marriage and divorce. And specifically, when it comes to divorce, that topic always raises a great deal of questions. And we simply don't have time here this morning to explore all the questions, the implications, and perhaps even the what-ifs that this particular topic seems to raise. With that having been said, I pray nevertheless that you will listen to the words of Jesus here in his sermon on the mount and to do so with an open heart and an open mind. If you are married here this morning, you have discovered by now, sooner than later, that your marriage is not a romance novel. And the reason is rather simple. Marriage is the union of two people who arrive at the altar toting some surprisingly large baggage. And this luggage always contains sin. Often it gets opened right there on the honeymoon. Sometimes it waits for the week after the honeymoon. But sooner or later, the luggage is always there and it always pops open and it plays havoc in all of our marriages. Oftentimes, this sin will rear its ugly head and it will put a wedge between spouses. Sometimes this sin, if not dealt with, can become so pervasive that marriage even ends in a divorce. Thankfully, though, thankfully we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, Jesus came to deal with our sin. That is great news. This is the good news of the kingdom of heaven that he ushered in during his time on earth. This means 
that Jesus came not only to reconcile us back to a holy God through his death on the cross, but it also means that Jesus came to reconcile husbands and wives together. It also means he came to restore broken marriages through his resurrection power. This is the beauty of the kingdom of heaven coming down into our lives through our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we submit to Jesus as our king, let me tell you, it impacts everything, including our marriage. Just as we have seen over the course of the last several weeks, Jesus has been giving us several examples here, in particular in Matthew chapter 5, of what it looks like to live as kingdom citizens here on earth. What it looks like to live with what he calls this exceeding righteousness or this surpassing righteousness. And now he does that for the same thing here in the issue of marriage and divorce. And like all the other examples preceding it, it always begins with repentance. And that is no different today. In the context here in Matthew 5, that means we need to repent of marriage without commitment. And we need to make lifelong faithfulness the goal in our marriages. I feel safe in saying that there is not one person here today who has not in some way or the other been touched by the shadow of divorce. For some, divorce was a painful reality that you perhaps have personally endured. Others of you are children of divorce. Still others have watched from the sidelines as a family member or perhaps a good friend or even a co-worker has gone through a divorce. And perhaps there are still some of you who are struggling through even a dysfunctional marriage even now who are considering divorce as an option. But before you walk out on your marriage, consider what Laura Petherbridge said as she reflected on her own experience. And I quote her words. She says, 30 years ago, I got divorced. So far, I've lived 59 years. And without a doubt, divorce was the worst season of my life. Nothing I've suffered since that time even comes close. Not a wayward child, not a stroke, not the betrayal of a close friend, not job loss, not watching the collapse of a ministry, not the death of a parent, not a root canal when the Novocaine didn't work. Absolutely nothing compares to the horrific pain of having a spouse decide, I don't, after saying, I do. There are probably few experiences in life that bring more pain and leave more scars than divorce. However divorce has touched your life here this morning, I also feel safe in saying that this shadow has affected our thinking as well. The prevalence of divorce and even our connection with divorce has shaped the way we now think about divorce. And for this reason, it's critical that we understand not what our culture thinks about divorce, but rather what God thinks about divorce. Why is that so important? Well, because what you believe about divorce actually reveals what you believe about marriage. And since God is the creator of marriage, it is in our best interest to turn to Him in His Word when it comes to marriage and divorce. 
And so again, I urge you to receive what Jesus says here this morning about marriage and divorce with an open heart. Because Jesus, through his Sermon on the Mount here, is actually showing not just his disciples in that day, but he is showing us as his followers now, today, how the kingdom of heaven impacts marriage and divorce. So what does Jesus teach about divorce? Well, I want to break it down into two points of what he teaches us here. In the first of which is, number one, Jesus teaches that divorce for any cause is prohibited by God. Marriage has always played a fundamental role in the stability of society. And even in Jesus' day, divorce had become so common that it threatened the very fabric of Jewish society. In fact, we see this attitude in the Pharisees' question to Jesus. In fact, this attitude towards marriage is seen in the Pharisees' ancient. It's an ancient question they ask, but it is still a very contemporary question in which people are asking today, and that is this, how can I get out of this marriage? In 2,000 years, this cavalier attitude toward marriage is still just as prevalent. People are still looking for reasons to get out of marriage instead of looking for ways to stay in their marriage. Instead of striving to understand how to make marriage flourish as God had designed them, the Pharisees here, that is the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were searching for loopholes in the law of Moses so that they could easily get out of their marriages. In addition, women had very few rights in this ancient culture in which Jesus preaches the Sermon of the Mount. In fact, one author described the culture of the day this way. He said, a bride was bought, regarded as property, used as a household drudge, and dismissed as pleasure. And so you take this view, a very low view of women in the ancient culture, and you combine it with a low view of marriage, and now we see the social context in which Jesus speaks on this very issue. In Jesus' day, there were actually two Jewish schools of thought regarding divorce. The controversy actually centered over the interpretation of a particular phrase that goes back to the Old Testament here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, where the law of Moses states this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. What this verse is doing here, in fact, in particular, the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24, this verse and these verses here are giving instructions regarding divorce if a husband should find some indecency in his wife. And, of course, that is exactly where the controversy begins. The burning question in Jesus' day was, well, what does some indecency mean that Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy 24. And there was two schools of thought about this. Those in the school of a rabbi named Shammai took a very restrictive or narrow view and taught that this 
quote, indecency referred to some sort of serious sexual misconduct, just shy or short of adultery, since in the law of Moses in that day, adultery was actually punishable by death, according to Leviticus 20.10. However, here's what we also need to understand. As we progress through Jewish history, and now we are here during the day of Jesus, and by the time of the Roman occupation and its legal system, it had made the death sentence in the law of Moses very difficult to obtain since the Jewish society was under the laws of Roman government. Therefore, Jewish practice had substituted divorce for death in the case of adultery. That's one school of thought. It was very limited, very narrow. The other school of thought here by a rabbi named Hiel interpreted this phrase, indecency or some indecency, in the very widest manner possible. And essentially said this, that a man could divorce his wife for any reason he came up with, such as if she cooked him a bad dinner. If she spoke to men in the streets, if she spoke disrespectfully to his parents and in his presence, if she spoke in an argumentative way that could be heard next door, if he found someone even more beautiful than his existing wife, then she, his current wife, was considered, quote, indecent, and he then could divorce her so long as he provided her with a certificate of divorce. In this very broad line of thinking, it was considered even, if you might imagine this, a man's religious duty to rid himself of a bad wife. In fact, according to one commentator, it was said in Jesus' day, a man who had a bad wife would never face hell because he had paid for his own sins here on earth. And the Pharisees, of Jesus' day, we're now using this very broad view of divorce and using it as their justification to dissolve a marriage for any reason whatsoever. Of course, the same thing is true today. Except now, both men and women have this option available to them in our culture. If you want to get out of your marriage, you can simply file for a no-default divorce and be done with it. So one school of thought taught that divorce was very limited, while the other school blew the doors wide open when it came to divorce. Now, here's the question. Which view do you think was most popular in Jesus' day? Yeah, you guessed it. The permissive view became the dominant view, but in no way did this mean it was God's view. Ironically, this now is the same ongoing debate the Pharisees tried to drag Jesus into later on in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, where they came to him and tested him by asking Jesus this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, in Matthew 19, the Pharisees were obviously trying to drag Jesus into this controversy, these two schools of thought, and then exploit his answer for their own benefit. All of this now brings us to Jesus and what he said about divorce here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Look at it again with me 
in verses 31 and 32. Because now you have some context. Now you have some background into which he speaks these words. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That phrase comes from what we just saw in Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever remarries or marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So you see two radically different views of divorce here between what the Pharisees are teaching and saying and what Jesus is saying. Notice what the Pharisees or Jewish tradition said, that a man could legally divorce his wife for any cause so long as he gave her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is referring to the Mosaic Law here when he quotes this in Deuteronomy 24, which, again, we already stated, regulated what a husband was to do if he divorced his wife. What God was doing back in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 24 is he said that it had to be done, a divorce that is, in a way that protected the divorced woman from being traded around like a used car. In that ancient culture, it was very, very difficult for a woman to survive economically on her own. And so a divorced woman usually remarried, often for her own survival, her own security. And the certificate of divorce simply served as the legal proof that her husband truly did terminate the marriage. And so the whole goal of the law of Moses here, in which the Pharisees are referring to in Deuteronomy 24, was simply to provide protection for the woman who's being divorced. The certificate proved her innocence of adultery and actually provided her a right to remarry. The certificate also prevented the man from remarrying his divorced wife if she should remarry and then be divorced again. It could, it, it, he then could not drive her away in shame and then later claim, hey, I still want to remarry you and just trade her around and made easy divorcism just all that simple. So how then did the Pharisees read, how were they reading the Old Testament law that goes back to Deuteronomy 24 on divorce? Well, as you know, we can make just about the we can make the Bible say just about anything if our hearts are wrong. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus quotes their twisted view of divorce when he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You see, the Pharisees thought that as long as you simply provide your wife with this certificate of divorce, hey, I'm obeying the law. I'm righteous. But do you see the problem here? The underlying problem. The law of Moses was meant to limit divorce. It was meant to actually protect women. But the Pharisees twisted it into how a man can safeguard himself. All he has to do is complete the paperwork, and he's good to go. And they saw themselves as righteous still. But here, Jesus now comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and listen to what he has to say in contrast to what the Pharisees were teaching. 
Jesus said any cause divorce inevitably leads to adultery when remarriage occurs. Remarriage is assumed in Jesus' day. And so if a husband divorces his wife, the wife, out of necessity, out of survival, is forced to remarry. But in doing so, Jesus says not only is it actually forcing her to commit adultery, but the man who marries her commits adultery as well. And so although a certificate of divorce has been given to the woman, Jesus is saying that God does not view the divorce as legitimate. Why? Because the marriage has not been legitimately dissolved in God's eyes. Remember, the men in Jesus' day were divorcing their wives for any reason. In marriage, two people become one flesh in a bond that isn't dissolved simply because one spouse hands the other spouse a piece of paper. That's why Jesus said that even though the woman is holding a certificate of divorce in her hands, should she remarry, she and her new husband will be committing adultery. Why? Because in God's eyes, she's still married to her first husband. Ultimately, any cause divorce doesn't dissolve a marriage in God's eyes, and it leads to adultery when remarriage occurs. So Jesus here, as we see so far, he did not affirm divorce for just any cause. That the Pharisees were promoting in order to satisfy their own lustful hearts. Keep in mind the context in which Jesus is talking about divorce, even within the Sermon on the Mount. He is showing us, that is Jesus, the real intent of God's law when it comes not so much to divorce, but he's showing us the intent of God's law when it comes to adultery. The Pharisees, if you remember last Sunday what we learned, they prided themselves on the fact that they did not commit adultery. But as we saw last Sunday, Jesus said in verse 28, if you back up, he says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And now, in these verses, immediately after that, Jesus indicts them again for what? Adultery. Why? Because they were divorcing their wives for any reason. Sure, the ease of divorce made it possible to avoid open adultery in the eyes of society, but Jesus reminds them that divorce for any cause is prohibited by God, and in his eyes, they are guilty still of adultery. So, is this Jesus, is this his last words on divorce? Is this all he has to say on the matter? Well, the answer to that is no. Jesus speaks, as we already kind of alluded to, on this very issue again later on in the book of Matthew, particular Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 5, here on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says divorce for any reason is what? It's prohibited by God. Because it leads to adultery in a remarriage. 
But here in Matthew 19, which I would invite you to turn to, and that's where we spend the rest of our time together, Jesus says, and this brings us to our second point now, that divorce for just cause is permitted by God. Remember the context in Matthew 19. And the context in this section of of Matthew is when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him a question in verse 3. And that question is this. Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? But what's interesting here in Matthew 19, Jesus does not answer them on their own terms. Of course, Jesus never did. Instead, he immediately brings them to the very heart of the issue. And he tells them, look at it, in verses 4 through 6. Notice it in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Here's his response. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But the Pharisees, oh, they're so prideful. And they thought they were smarter than Jesus. And so in their arrogance, they actually asked Jesus in verse 7, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Again, alluding to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And that's when Jesus exposes them for who they are. That's when Jesus goes to the root of the issue here in verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 19. Look what he says. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, in this section of verses here, Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, Jesus expands on what he says in Matthew chapter 5. And what I want us to do is kind of unpack what he says here in Matthew 19 in three statements that contrast the Pharisees' view of divorce versus Jesus' view of divorce. And notice what he says. Notice the difference here. First of all, look at this. The Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce or the reasons for divorce, whereas Jesus was focused on the sanctity of marriage. You see, the Pharisees were asking questions about the grounds or the reasons, the causes for divorce. But Jesus, notice what he's doing. He's bringing them back to God's original design for marriage. In all their haggling over the reasons for divorce, the Pharisees had totally missed the sanctity of marriage. And in doing so, what they were doing is diminishing the value of marriage. And so Jesus brought them back to God's wonderful design of marriage in creation. And I think it's rather important for us to note what Jesus specifically emphasizes about marriage 
that he brings to their attention here in Matthew 19. Jesus quotes from two different chapters in Genesis. He quotes from Genesis 1 and then he quotes from Genesis 2, stating that God's original design for marriage is one exclusive. It's exclusive between one man and one woman and that it is permanent, number two, for a lifetime. And that's what he emphasizes. And so from the beginning, this was God's plan for marriage, Jesus says. And so think about this. Just stop for a moment. And let's, let's think through this even in our own culture today. In a culture in which we live that has redefined marriage to accommodate our sin, we as Christ followers, we must hold fast to God's original design for marriage as good for all humanity. We should not, if you claim to be a Christ follower here this morning, we should not be a people who are therefore looking for loopholes to get out of our marriages. Rather, we should be a people who are relying on the grace of God to stay in our marriages. Do you realize in the beginning, divorce was inconceivable and even impossible. When God designed marriage for Adam and Eve, no allowance was made for divorce. God said in Genesis 2, 24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so whenever a divorce occurs, it is something that was never meant to be. On a deeper level, divorce severs a union that God himself has joined together. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 19, 6, Therefore, therefore what? In light of God's original design, in light of what God does in a marriage union, on that wedding day, when you stand and say your vows in front of witnesses and God most holy. Therefore, in light of that, Jesus says, What God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, Jesus wants us to understand something here. He wants us to understand that from the beginning, divorce was never God's will for marriage. God's design for marriage has always been about and will always be about one man and one woman united together in marriage for a lifetime. This is why Jesus is bringing us back to the heart of God and to his design for marriage Jesus, understand what's happening here. In that day in which he speaks, he is confronting, and even now through the recorded word of God, Jesus is confronting us today, and he is confronting a heart that is focused on divorce, but yet totally disconnected from God's heart for marriage. This brings us to the second point, or the second observation, or truth in which we find And that is the Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command. But Jesus called it a concession to the hardness of people's hearts. Now, 
Of all people in Jesus' day, you would think the religious leaders, the Pharisees, would have held high the sanctity of marriage. But instead, their hearts were focused on what? Their hearts were focused on looking for loopholes in the law of Moses to get out of their marriages. This is why the Pharisees respond with another reference to Deuteronomy 24 when they ask Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 7, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? But note Jesus' answer specifically in verse 8. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Again, step back and understand what's going on. The Pharisees twisted what Moses permitted in Deuteronomy 24 to defend their idea of divorce. You see, they saw divorce as a command Moses had given them, and they focused then on the any cause, any reason for divorce. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Moses never commanded divorce, and he certainly never encouraged divorce. What Moses did command, Jesus reminds them, is that if, 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 if a divorce took place, then you need to follow certain procedures. Why? Such as giving a divorce certificate because it was all for the purpose of protecting the woman. So how then did Jesus respond to the Pharisees' question about divorce? In summary, Jesus said this. Moses only permitted divorce because hard-hearted men were destroying the covenant of marriage that God originally designed in Genesis 1 and 2. And then, what's interesting, notice Jesus' logic. Jesus immediately refers again to God's original design for marriage by saying, but from the beginning it was not so. So twice within these verses here, twice Jesus takes us back to creation and God's original design for marriage. Many people in our churches today, our culture today certainly, claim to be led by the Lord to get a divorce in order to be happy. But Jesus is showing us that divorce is a perversion of God's intention for marriage. He's showing us that divorce is actually a product of a self-centered heart. In other words, Jesus is showing us that divorce is actually the reflection of an unrepentant heart in one or both of the spouses And God actually hates it, he says, according to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. And so what we see here is that God never commanded divorce, but simply permitted it. Why? As a concession to the hardness 
of people's hearts. Now, understanding this, we actually now come to the very heart of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 19, which is a parallel of Matthew chapter 5. Notice this. The Pharisees regarded divorce lightly, and that was the issue. That was the whole issue. But Jesus took it so seriously that he limited it to the just cause of sexual immorality. This was the conclusion of Jesus' debate with the Pharisees. And this is also what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it behooves us to see what Jesus said here now side by side in both of these passages. You read in Matthew 5, verse 32, let's look at it. He says, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And then you see almost verbatim the same wording that Jesus says here in Matthew 19, 9, where he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, you cannot help but notice what is called the exception clause in these two verses, where Jesus says, except for sexual immorality. Now, Not to belittle your intelligence, but we need to be on the same page. What is sexual immorality? Because in our day and age, everybody creates their own definitions. Sexual immorality, biblically speaking here, is a very broad term that refers to any illicit sexual intercourse. And because we are dealing in the context of Matthew chapter 5 and 19... Sexual immorality, in particular, focuses on marriage and divorce. And so the primary sexual immorality involves adultery within the marriage. But notice, it also includes, and we know this from other, when you take the totality of God's Word, it includes such things as incest, prostitution, homosexuality, and even bestiality, all of which were originally punished by death under the Mosaic Law. In other words... Any of these sexual sins, any sexual unfaithfulness is a permissible ground for divorce according to Jesus Christ here in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Why? As one commentator writes, and I quote, sexual immorality breaks the marriage covenant and may be a sign of the death of the marriage. Those are scary and sobering words. We also know from the counsel of God's word that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, adds that abandonment, or sometimes called desertion, by an unbelieving spouse constitutes grounds for a valid divorce in the eyes of God. I also happen to believe a case can be made for justifiable divorce when there is abuse by either spouse, which is a form of marital abandonment while still being physically present. When a husband, or even in our day and age, it could be a wife, but most of the time a husband, when a husband repeatedly abuses his wife, not only has he created an abandonment scenario, 
in which he has abandoned his marital covenant, his vows. But he is also functionally saying with his actions, I am against you and I have no regard for God's purpose in marriage. Now, if you have been following along, we right away, we should, and I hope you do, we feel the tension here this morning. Jesus has been revealing the spirit of the law going back to Moses, Deuteronomy 24. And the law and the spirit of it is Jesus lifts up the sanctity of marriage. He elevates marriage to its rightful place in creation. And now here we are. We're talking about permissible reasons for divorce. And as such, listen, we here this morning, we must not be quick to jump at divorce, trying to find a reason to get out of marriage. Yes, divorce is permissible in some situations. And the Bible is explicit, such as adultery, abandonment, and abuse. But even then, it is not mandatory. Divorce is a last resort. When one's heart, when a spouse's heart has been so hardened by sin that they refuse to repent and submit themselves to God Almighty and submit themselves to the truth of God's Word. And so if we here now, if we come to this section of the Sermon on the Mount in these verses in Matthew 19, and we come looking for reasons to justify divorce, then we are no better than the Pharisees. We have missed the whole point. In fact, divorce is never commanded or even required in Scripture, even for adultery. Why? Because reconciliation is always the goal. We think adultery always needs and must end in divorce. That is our thinking in our culture. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the case. You can choose, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can choose to forgive. You can choose to reconcile even after adultery, and you can have a grace-filled marriage. It was a revolutionary thought in Jesus' day, just as it is even in our day. But Jesus is elevating the sanctity of marriage, and he is challenging the cultural norms for both marriage and divorce. And he's anchoring marriage in his covenant love. Marriage is a covenant made by God. And we enter into that covenant, how? With our words. Which is why Jesus then goes to the issue of oaths that Pastor Chris taught two Sundays ago. They're tied together. We are to take our vows before God seriously Why? Because God takes our vows seriously. Wedding vows are some of the biggest promises you will ever make in your life. But we all know, listen, the reality of marriage is that it can also bring some of the biggest challenges that you will ever face in life. I'll be the first to testify to that. Ask my wife. She says I'm the biggest challenge in her whole life. So the question then becomes, how then, how then, how do we How do we keep our wedding vows when you stand in the altar or before a courthouse and a judge and you say, I do, to your spouse? 
Well, let me leave you with three takeaways. First of which is marriage is first and foremost about the glory of God, not how happy a spouse can make you. Most people, listen to me, probably your family, your friends, and your coworkers and your neighbors, this is how they interpret marriage through the lens of their happiness. Pastor and author Tim Keller comments, Today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship of marriage appears to require more love and affirmation from us than what we are getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. And so maybe you're here this morning and your spouse isn't what you thought they would be. Perhaps he or she is not as fulfilling as you thought. And so now you have started considering in your mind, in your heart, the option of divorce. This view of relationships has distorted our view of marriage. And in turn, what happens is we begin to demand things from marriage it was never intended to provide. Listen, is marriage tough work? Oh, yeah, you bet it is. It is not for the faint of heart. And if you're not ready to work, then don't marry. However, there is. There is great joy in marriage when it is lived out as God intended in covenant to your spouse for his glory. Listen to me. The answer to joy-filled marriages isn't about how happy your spouse can make you. It is about how your marriage can glorify God. Not only does the Bible begin with marriage of man and woman in Genesis, but do you realize it ends with marriage of Christ and His church, us, in Revelation 19 through 22. And with that perspective, this is why we now come to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 and 31 and 32, where Paul writes, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this. This is a profound mystery. And oh, it is. But he says that I am talking about Christ in the church. And what Paul is doing, he is showing us the grander purpose of marriage between a husband and wife that is the glorious foreshadow of the coming marriage of Christ and his church, us. For this reason, marriage is not a social social convention that you simply walk out on when you're tired of it or the expectations of your spouse are not being met. Listen, it is a gospel reality intended to be a witness of our union with Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus declares, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Second, marriage is a covenant. And it's a covenant to be honored, not a contract to be broken when one spouse doesn't meet the expectations of the other. Yes, hear me. Yes, Jesus allows for divorce. But also hear this. Repentant people, kingdom citizens, 
Christ's followers don't press toward what he allows. Repentant people reach for what Christ intends. And what Christ intends is what God intended from the beginning. Lifelong faithfulness in marriage. Every marriage is hard to keep alive. But every marriage can also have the power of Jesus Christ, who is saying to us, I will never divorce you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so if you're a Christ follower here this morning, I plead to you especially, don't look for loopholes to get out of your marriage. Instead, look to God's grace as the means in which to stay in your marriage. You've received forgiveness from God. Through Jesus Christ. You've been reconciled to God. You know what that means? Forgiveness and reconciliation is what you have. It's what you've experienced. It's what every marriage needs, and it is what God provides in Jesus Christ. Just like in Jesus' day, people are asking the wrong questions in our culture. How can I get out of this marriage? I'm not happy anymore. But Jesus turns these type of questions upside down and he forces us to examine our hearts. And so may God help us to be faithful to our spouse if we are married, for our spouse if we hope to be married in the future, or simply to God himself if we remain single. And then the third truth I leave you. Marriage faithfulness is possible. And my question to you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Marriage faithfulness is possible through the grace of God, the presence of Jesus, and the power of the Spirit. There is hope for your marriage. All is not lost. With God, all things are possible. Listen, here at LifeBridge, we believe in the miraculous healing power of Jesus Christ. We believe that what God is able to do in relationships when two people are honest about their brokenness within a marriage. Listen, marriages on the brink of disaster can find new life through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. God can resurrect a dead marriage. He can give it new life. And so I plead with you, if that is your marriage, pray for restoration. If you're on the brink of divorce, don't do it. Yes, I understand. I am full aware that it takes both spouses to fully restore a marriage. At the same time, I plead with you that you can persevere by the Spirit's power and God can use you to influence your spouse in powerful ways. And I understand that the reality is that that still may not work out in a restored marriage when it's only one spouse who is submitted to Jesus as their king. If you're divorced and single here this morning, if you're divorced and remarried here this morning, please know that in Jesus Christ, you are not second string. You are not an outcast. You are not a second class citizen. Listen to me. You are a new creation. You are a redeemed citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And so wherever you are right now in regard to marriage, divorce, and remarriage, don't divorce your current spouse to remarry your first spouse. Don't break one covenant in order to try to restore the one that's already been broken. Instead, ask God's forgiveness and move forward in your current marriage for the glory of God. And to those of you that are here and you have broken your marriage vows, 
please know this. Please, please know that there is forgiveness and there is restoration in Jesus Christ. To those that have been sinned against in marriage, know that you have a friend in Jesus. If there is anyone who knows what it is like to be rejected without cause, it is Jesus. So turn to Him. To those who have sinned in this area, my plea to you is to own it and confess it. Don't try to justify it. Rather, come to Jesus. Come to a Savior who forgives broken and repentant sinners. Listen, the glory of the gospel is the fact that Jesus does not cast us out as we deserve. He forgives us. He restores us at the cost of his life on the cross. He dies to gain. Do you realize this? Not only to gain a holy bride, but an adulterous bride. Because that's what all of us are. And he died to gain us and to cleanse us, and to purify us, that we may be His forever as the church. That is what marriage is all about. And that is why divorce is so destructive, because it actually paints a picture of God that is not true. But the gospel gives us a new heart by which we are empowered to love our spouses in marriage. Christ has called His church, us, to be set apart in this area. And so let us hold fast to our bridegroom in Jesus and let us hold fast to our spouses in marriage to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and for for the clear teaching on this issue. And Lord, may we be a people who allow You to look at our hearts and to see where we have maybe been looking for a loophole out of our marriage commitments. And God, would you breathe into our marriages unity and a sense of permanence in our love and commitment to each other as husband and wife. And Lord, if there are any who need you, would you grant us the grace to turn to you to find the love we need and find the security we need in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This from us are going to pray a chorus. And as they do, man, come to the Lord. Come to the throne room of God and beg for His grace and mercy as you need. And then when they're done, the praise team's going to sing. We'll take up our offering and then be dismissed.